in just a moment, I'm going to be reading for Psalm 131. You can find it printed in your bulletin. That may be the easiest place to turn this morning. However, of course, you can turn in your Bibles there if you would like to, uh, or in the uh, Pew Bibles that are there. It's on page 519 if you'd like to find uh, it in that copy of the Word. Uh, this is the second in a series of four sermons that I'm calling uh, Sabbatical Reflections, and the intent of it is to help you to see some of the things that I was thinking through, working on, processing during the time of the sabbatical. This particular sermon, uh, at least a good portion of this sermon, kind of came together a couple of weeks ago when I was uh, giving a talk to a, a small group of students over at Westminster. And if it helps you to connect uh, the dots in terms of where sermons go and where they fit a little bit, it actually connects quite well with last week's sermon on Shabbat Shalom. That's why I had us read that passage from uh, Matthew once again uh, about the rest. As I read this passage, you will recognize as well the theme of rest and soul rest that is found in Psalm 131 and likewise in the Matthew 11 passage that Rex read for uh, us earlier. But it's also a theme that I was thinking about, and, uh, and I'll get into it a little bit more in terms of the reason for that in just a moment. You can connect it as well with a sermon a while back called The Discipline of Cogitation. That was an odd-sounding word. But in that sermon, we were talking about the uh, the work of the Christian life to think about God, to think hard about God, to concentrate, to reflect deeply on the things of God, to have a rich discipline, uh, love of God with all of our minds. Perhaps this sermon uh, is another side of that sermon. We might think of it as uh, the discipline of simplification. Uh, I, I didn't call it that, but nevertheless, my sabbatical was characterized by some level of simplification in my own life. All right, with that, let me read for us this brief portion of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. These are the words of King David, the king of Israel, who had many concerns in his life, many things to think through. He writes this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Great God in heaven, thank you for the beauty, the simplicity, and the preservation of the words that are before us. They're old words, 3,000 years old, and they are living, and they are active, and they are sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, Today, help us to hear them afresh through the working of the Spirit in our lives. Show us the Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our title today, if you've looked at your bulletins, is A Stay Against Confusion. 
Stay Against Confusion. My reflections on this theme arose because as wonderful as a sabbatical is, it was, at times at least, uh, somewhat confusing and somewhat disorienting. I've shared this with some of you. All of the regular routines were off just a little bit. And that might sound liberating to us, it might sound freeing to us, but I have to admit that sometimes I found it to be unsettling. And some of us in conversation have talked about it and compared it to retirement. Now, obviously, I haven't experienced that yet, but some of you have, and, and you have that sense of having stopped what essentially, at least in one level, defined at least what you do, if not who you are, and when that activity ceases, it can be a little bit putting off-putting in terms of our balance. That happened to me during this sabbatical. Now, that's my own personal story. But, of course, it is true for every single one of us. It is simply easy to get confused in this world. It is easy for us to lose our way. It is easy for us to go adrift in this world. And I'm not going to spend any time illustrating why and how that is easy to do. You know how easy it is to become confused in this world. You know the floods of information, of thoughts that can go through our minds to confuse us. It is easy to lose track of what is true and to be confused about what to do. And so, in these times, in times such as ours, a stay against confusion is essential. This title is not original. Robert Frost wrote an introduction to a collection of his poetry, and he described a poem this way. It, a poem, begins in delight, it inclines to impulse, it assumes direction with the very first line laid down, it runs a course and ends in a clarification. Not necessarily a great clarification, but a momentary stay against confusion. Frost sees poetry as a stay, albeit a momentary stay, but as a stay against confusion. And we can affirm what Frost is saying there because this is exactly what King David has given to us. Now, months ago, we spent a lot of time walking with David through his complex life, through all of the decisions, all of the plans, all of the intrigue, all of the warfare that took place in his life. But here, David prepares for us just a little poem. It's a little poem that he's written for the sake of his own soul, to quiet his own soul. If you look at the first two verses, you'll see the first-person personal pronoun, I and my, is used throughout in those first two verses. And then, of course, what happens in the third verse is he essentially says, listen, I'm, I'm giving you a personal story, I'm giving you my personal poem, trying to bring rest to my own soul through this poem, and I'm now turning it to you, O Israel. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Take my poem 
and make this your poem. So we can affirm what Frost is saying there. Now, I first heard the phrase, a stay against confusion, because there's a particular author that I enjoy who wrote a book, and he had it as the title, A Stay Against Confusion, Essays in Faith and in Fiction. Now, we need a, a quick definition here before we continue on, just so we understand what we're talking about. The word stay is, of course, a familiar word to us. It's particularly a familiar word to us in its various verbal forms, right? I'm going to stay behind. You tell your dog to stay. We all get that. Here, we're using stay as a noun, and that's perhaps not quite as common as using stay as a verb. So uh, today, I'm wearing a shirt. Uh, my shirt is not a button-down shirt. Uh, it's not a tab collar shirt. Uh, instead, inside, right, right here, uh, I have a, a stay, right, a collar stay. It's a little piece of metal that slides into the collar and helps the collar to stay in place. That's a noun usage of the word stay. But I want to give you another image that is an image that I, I, I think you can have in your mind that will be helpful for the sake of this sermon, and it's an image from uh, the world of sailing. So, uh, kids, if you are drawing this sermon, if you're just right now drawing pictures, draw a sailboat and put some stay lines on it, and I'll explain to you what the stay lines are, and your parents can help you uh, with the stay lines on a sailboat. So, on a sailboat, when you have the mast going up, and this is particularly true in older sailboats or sailboats that aren't all made of modern materials which have a lot of uh, inherent strength to them, but you needed a way to keep that mast firm, or at least as stable as you possibly could. And the way that you would make that mast firm, secure to its place so it wouldn't topple over or wobble too much, was through stay lines. So a stay in sailing is a line that goes from the top of the mast down to the bow of the boat. That's the fore stay. And then there's another line, or could be another line. You can have multiple stays. You can have any stages, any number of stays on, especially an older sailing boat. And then you would have a back stay that would run from the top of the mast and go back down to the stern of the boat. So I think if we have that image in our mind today, it'll be helpful to us. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about a stay against confusion. And what I'm suggesting to us is simply this, that in this world, it is absolutely vital and essential for us to have stays in our lives, things that clarify, things in our lives that simplify, that ground us, that remind us, that secure us, that tether us. We need moorings in our lives. We need stays. And thank God, he has not left us adrift in this world. He has not left us without stays that serve to stabilize our restful, restless souls. Now perhaps, I don't know, in a Sunday school class one time or maybe uh, a sermon series, I'll preach a whole uh, summer on the stays that God has placed in this world. But on one level, you can think about the stays that God has put into this world as the things that are uh, common to us. They're, they're everyday things. They're, they're everyday kindnesses or mercies that God has shown in our lives that provide for us a stay against confusion. So poetry and fiction 
are two that were just mentioned there that serve in that way to keep us from sliding into confusion. And then, of course, when you put uh, poetry into biblical poetry, or when you take the idea of fiction and you put it in nonfiction, but stories that God has given to us of the faith worked out, you have a stay against confusion. There are all sorts of other things, though, as well. You know this, for me, gardening is a stay against confusion. Putting my hands down in the soil and playing in the dirt helps me to go, okay, got it. I understand who I am. This is who I am. I'm a creature of the dirt. I do this, and it helps me to orient who I am. Music, for many of us, serves in that way. The love of my wife functions as a stay in my life when all other things are confusing and bewildering to me. Fishing and crabbing work that way for me. A good dog serves as a stay against confusion. Not so much a cat. That's an increase of confusion. <laughs> Sorry, cat people. Uh, but a good dog, at least, serves as a stay against confusion. These are things that serve to clarify, to simplify, to reorient us. But of course, those are, are the common everyday uh, type of mercies of immeasurably greater weight is that God himself, Jesus himself, is our stay. Who he is in his eternality, in the fact that he became incarnate in his love, in his truthfulness, in his wisdom, in his revelation of God, in the work that he accomplished on our behalf, in his perfect loving of his Father, in his loving obedience to his Father, in his life on our behalf, in his death on our behalf, resurrection and ascension and session at the right hand of the Son, his preaching of the good news of the gospel, which he did when he was on earth, and he continues to this day using us as his instruments. The fulfilled promises of God in Christ are the reason, and this is here riffing from Hebrews a little bit, are the reason we have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We have in the perfect work of Jesus... What's the words of Hebrews? A steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, sorry, that just, it's still within the realm of sailing, okay, and lines, but we, we went a different direction there, at least in sailing. A steadfast anchor of the soul in the completed work of Jesus and going into the right hand of his Father. An anchor that is cast upward that is not cast downward into the depths of the sea, but instead is cast into the holies of holies, into the very presence of God, into the one who has founded the seas and founded the earth and laid the foundations for all of them. It's a stay against confusion. Our God is our rock. Now what I'd like to do with the remainder of this sermon is highlight two of the stays form, if you will. The fore stay and the back stay. These are things, to use scriptural language, that help us to hold fast to Christ, to stand firm in Christ, and to be deeply rooted in him. These are two things. 
They take us to a childlike faith, and they take us to a calm and quieted soul. First, God has gifted to his church a great set of creeds and confession, summaries of biblical truth, of biblical faith that anchor us to the word of God and Christ himself. There are any number, and we've talked about this before, of confessional, of creedal statements that can be found in Scripture. Last week, after we read the Ten Commandments, we continued reading into Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we read together the Shema, right? The Shema of Israel. The Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A confessional statement for the people of Israel. Another phrase that is oftentimes repeated throughout Scripture is the one that was originally given to Moses as God's self-revelation in the book of Exodus, where the Lord reveals himself and says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, full of steadfast love and faithfulness. That is a confession. And you move into the New Testament And there's the confession that Jesus is Lord. There's the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's the confession that exists that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Look at the front of your bulletin just to give an example of this. In the front of your bulletin, you'll find a passage from uh, 1 John. And that second sentence there, right in the middle of that section that's quoted, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. Whoever confesses that, whoever says that, that Jesus is the Son of God, is in fact abiding in God. Why? Why is that so? Romans 10 provides the answer for us. It says, if we believe in our heart, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and so is saved. With the heart you believe and are justified, with the mouth you confess and so are saved. Now, I'm just going to, this is familiar ground for us, but just to remind us of this. When we say confess, a lot of us time we hear confess our sins. So say, announce our sins to one another or to God. Fair enough, that's an appropriate usage of the term. But to confess is to agree. It is to, literally, it is to say the same thing. And so, yes, you can confess your sins. You're agreeing. You're saying the same thing about yourself that God says in terms of his law about your sin. Uh, But it's not limited to that. And so our affirmation of faith is really a confession of the faith. It's saying the same things together, the same truths together. The church then throughout history, has employed its very best cogitation to bring simplification and clarity to the faith via the creeds and the catechisms and the confessions. In the creeds, at their best, the essence of the faith is distilled, it is purified, it is simplified, so that in the darkest, most confusing times, You can turn to them by yourself. Many times I was just walking along during the sabbatical and I would just go to the Apostles' Creed and I would confess out loud 
usually walking by myself, the Apostles' Creed. You can confess them by yourself or better with your family or with your church family. And in confessing those truths, you will find rest for your souls, a stay against confusion. Not because it's all about creeds, or creeds are the only way to do this. Obviously, I've already listed other ways as well. They don't point to themselves, but what the creeds do is they point you immediately to God. They point you immediately to Christ, so that you are redirected, your biblical truths are taken, given to you in literally a bite-sized form, and saying, run with that. Take that and go to the Lord himself. We are a confessional church. We are under the word of God. Our confessions are under the word of God. But they provide us with a stay against confusion. Confusion that, quite frankly, is not only in the world, but confusion that can pretty easily creep into the church as well. I hope, I trust, that we are a joyfully confessional church. It is possible to be a curmudgeonly confessional church, a grouchy confessional church, a begrudging confessional church, where you feel like, oh, we just got to say this, we got to say this over and over again, and we got to say it because other people don't believe it, and we've got to be the ones who declare that we're right, and we police everybody else with that confession. I hope that's not us. We teach according to the great ecumenical creeds, the apostles, the Nicene, the Athanasian, the definition of Chalcedon. We teach according to them, and of course, according to the Reformed confessions, especially the Westminster Standards, we confess the faith together in worship. It's one of my favorite, I mean, I've said this before, it's one of my favorite parts of worship. To be able to confess the faith together with you people. To hear our voices unite together and say, this is it. This is what I believe, this is what we believe the design of that is to help us to stay, to stand in the Lord himself. Remember this that Frost said of a poem. It begins in delight. It assumes direction with the very first line laid down. Would you just walk with me for a moment through three first lines? Three first lines. Okay? Two of them have been in today's service. One was in the service last week. First line number one, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Apostles and essentially Nicene as well, change the I to we. Line, first line number two, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. First line number three, what is your only comfort in life and in death? that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And yes, I could go on with it. Why do I know him? Because we've confessed him a thousand times. I've, I've done work of cogitation to try and get those things into my head to store them up. We've said them in worship together, the repetition gets them into us. But think of what these first lines do. Now, I can't do all of these, but just think for a moment of the dissipation of confusion that happens the minute you say, 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Now, that rolls right off the tongue. Pause. Pause, though. What have you just said? You have just said that you don't believe you're an act of random chance in the world. That in fact, you and everything around you was made by God, an omnipotent, all-powerful, ruling God over the universe who has created and who has provided for everything in this world that we have. You've said that. You've said it about your, you've made a statement about God, but you're saying something then about yourself as well. And then there's another word in there. The other word is Father. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. And so this isn't just a force that's out there that made the earth and made everything, but it's a father. And as a father, he has intimacy and connection with the creation. He's not distancing himself from the creation. He's rather embracing his creative act in a way that is almost stunning. That he embraces it as a father, embraces the creation, the people of the creation in particular, as a father. I believe. I believe. That's a statement of saying that the faith is what's going to shape who I am, that the Lord, the Word, has called us to believe these things. And it is in the believing of these things that I am saved. With that simple first line laid down, we have been anchored in, in the very first words of Scripture, right? The very, very first words of Scripture are the exact same, or in essence, as the first words of the creed. They're picking up on the same thing. In the beginning, God created. Okay, that's where your creed is going to start as well. That God is the maker of all things. It roots us, the Nicene, the Apostles' Creed, in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Westminster takes hold of you and says, listen, do you feel directionless in life? You're trying to figure out what your purpose is? Why are you here? Mankind is always asking the question, why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Westminster says, there's a biblical answer to that. It's not going to answer everything you should do in the next five minutes, but in any case, it provides the framework for everything else to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then Heidelberg takes you as a very first line laid down to give you out of confusion, and it embraces you in Jesus Christ to comfort you, to tell you of the redemption, of the blood, of the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ, of the setting free that is found in Jesus Christ, and had I gone on, of the work of the Holy Spirit that is now at work within us through him, so that we are now willing and ready to live for him. That's incredible first lines that are laid down that begin to shape who we are and how we understand our place in the world. The confusion dissipates. Their mighty stays against confusion. Know them, love them, teach them joyfully to your children. So when I was on sabbatical and I would go to another church on a Sunday, for most of the time we were here in this area and we were in one sense very glad and delighted to be able to go to other churches, to worship with other brothers and sisters, to see certainly some kinds of different forms, different content at various times, but at the exact same times, it was sometimes confusing. It was a little bit hard to get the bearings in the midst of it, but we come to a part in the service where we would confess. We would confess the faith together, and it was like a deep cleansing breath to confess the faith together. And that brings me to my second stay. 
And the second stay is that, and I recognize I'll need to be brief here, is thankfulness for and appreciation for the rhythms that God has woven into this world. During the sabbatical, my rhythms were a little off. My beat was a little bit off. Now, we can consider here the, the rhythms of the seasons, right? God covenants in Genesis chapter 9 that the seasons are going to remain for us. We could talk about the rhythms of day and night. Uh, the, the Jeremiah talks about my God says my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night. We could talk about the rhythms of the great redemptive acts of God that the church has said over the course of time. These things are worth remembering to reorient you as who you are. But I was thankful during the sabbatical for the rhythmic clarity of the Sabbath. A day. A day of rest. A day to celebrate the resurrection. A Shabbat Shalom. Because the Lord of the Sabbath has come into this world. The Prince of Peace has come into this world. And he has declared, Shabbat Shalom, I give to you. You've entered into my rest. Now it's the first day of the week. It's not the last day anymore. Why? Because we've entered into it in his completed work. And now all that we do proceeds from the rest that we are enjoying together this particular day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Do not underestimate the simplicity of what you are doing right now. This is the rhythm maker. This sets the beat. It sets the tone in your life. In my household, as you can imagine, we never ask the question, are we going to church on Sunday? <laughs> uh, obvious reasons. I would encourage you to make that the same in yours as well. Of course, there are circumstances. We're not talking about the exceptions right now. We're talking about the rule. This is the day gifted to you by God, set apart that your mind and your heart and your body and your soul might rest in God himself with his people and his presence here in this place. As we sing, as we confess the faith together, as we offer up our prayers unto our God, as we hear from our God and as we are cleansed and fed in his sacrament, it all serves to clarify in a quiet, gentle, regular kind of way. It serves to resolve moral ambiguity. It serves to give us and secure in us a sense of who we are and what we are supposed to be doing. It is a simplification. It is a decomplication. And I don't mean to be simplistic with that, but here's the truth that I've said before. In fact, I think I said it right before uh, the sabbatical, and I say it again right now in quoting Jack Johnson, it is always better when we're together. It's always better to be together in the household of God with the people of 
God. One day, uh, during the sabbatical, we took a, a part of our vacation time and we went down uh, for vacation down onto the Chesapeake or onto the Choptank uh, River more particularly. And I was sitting in an Adirondack chair uh, right by the water, right by the pier. I oftentimes will have a stack of books down there and Lauren uh, came and joined me. And I must have had that look on my face that said, I'm engaged in deep cogitation. Like I'm solving all of the problems of the world. In fact, I'm solving all of the issues in the church that I've just figured out the evangelistic key that's going to unlock the doors for people coming in and streaming into the church. I must have had that expression on my faith face. And she said to me with, I think, anticipation, what are you thinking about? And I said, hon, I said, you know what? I think very simple thoughts when I'm down here. I think, hmm, I wonder if there's a crab on that line. And I think, ah, there goes the osprey. And there goes the eagle chasing the osprey. And there's the heron over there. There is something that all of us need in simplification of the faith that is given to us. Praise God for this line that was read to us earlier from Matthew chapter 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. I'm all for great cogitation. I think it's an important discipline, as long as it's founded upon great simplification, great essential bedrock stays, to mix the metaphors. Creeds and Sabbaths are simple stay lines that secure us to Christ. Let me close with a poem. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Lord, we thank you for such a grand gospel, for such a simple gospel. We pray that you would keep us holding fast, standing firm in the midst of this world so that you find faith on earth when you return. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're